we have three wonderful women leaders from North Carolina here today to share their stories with you. Um, North Carolina, known as the Old North State, is honored with a state song that says, heaven's blessings attend her. While we live, we will cherish, protect, and defend her. Today we have these three women leaders of the Old North State who live out those lyrics. Beth, Becky Gray and Tammy Fitzgerald and Joyce Pope each represent in their cherished state women who promote liberty, freedom, faith, and individual responsibility. Through their work and leadership, they are leading the charge, protecting and promoting North Carolina's values. Please welcome today, Becky Gray. Becky is right here, and she is currently Vice President for Outreach at the John Locke Foundation, having served there since 2007. The Locke Foundation is an independent think tank promoting truth and freedom for the future of North Carolina. The foundation is named for John Locke, an English philosopher whose writing inspired Thomas Jefferson. Becky provides information, consultation, and publications to elected officials, government staff, and decision makers involved in North Carolina state policy. She writes a monthly column for the Carolina Journal and is a frequent radio and television guest. Becky earned a degree in art from Queens College in Charlotte, North Carolina, a paralegal certificate from Meredith College, and has completed graduate work at UNC Charlotte and Greensboro. Becky has three children and four grandchildren, correct? And next we have Tammy Fitzgerald. Tammy has spent a lifetime serving and protecting pro-life, pro-family, and pro-religious liberty values. Today, Tammy is the executive director of the North Carolina Values Coalition, leading the charge to promote faith, family, and freedom in North Carolina through public policy. Tammy received her undergraduate degree from Oklahoma State University and her law degree from Oklahoma College. She is licensed, licensed as an attorney in North Carolina, Arizona, and Oklahoma. Tammy is the mother of two children and grandmother of three, correct? Okay. And then we have Joyce Pope. Uh, Joyce, since 2013, has been vice president of the John William Pope Foundation here in Raleigh. The Pope Foundation makes grants to support public policy groups, educational institutions, humanitarian efforts, and the arts. Their mission is to ensure future generations have the same opportunities as their founder and Joyce's grandfather, correct? Yes. yes. The successful businessman and philanthropist John William Pope. The Pope Foundation promotes the freedom to live, work, pursue individual interests, sustain family, and prosper. Joyce Pope is both a UNC Chapel Hill undergrad and law school grad. And we want to personally thank Joyce and the Pope Foundation for providing us a grant which helped pay for this wonderful summit today. So um, without further introduction, I think we'll open with Becky, who will share her thoughts with you. And after hearing from all three of our panelists, we'll open the floor to your questions. Yeah, you're very welcome. 
Thank you so much, and thank you for the invitation to be with you. This is such an honor, and as I look around this room at these bright, smart, very beautiful young women um, committed to conservatism as, as we are, um, I'm just really humbled to be here with you. Thank you. Um, I've got lots of advice for you today. Um, first of all, let me tell you, though, about the John Locke Foundation, just because I want to make sure that you all are aware of this. Uh, the Locke Foundation is a state-based public policy think tank. We have been here in North Carolina for 26 years. Um, we have been very active in the conservative movement. We are considered the thought leaders for the conservative movement in North Carolina. There are state-based think tanks now in all 50 states. So if you are not familiar with the state-based free market limited government think tank in your state, please get acquainted with it, introduce yourself, get familiar with that work. Many of these offer internships as the John Locke Foundation does here in Raleigh. Um, you can find that if you, if you don't know, we're part of a group called the State Policy Network. That's on the internet. Just look that up and it's got designated what those state-based think tanks are <clears throat> in all 50 states. Now, I will tell you too that the John Locke Foundation is one of the oldest, we're one of the largest, and I think we're the best in the country. So if you really want a good experience, I want you to come back here and intern for the John Locke Foundation. Um, I, I have lots of advice for you, um, lots of advice that my children didn't take, so I'll try it again, we'll recycle that. Um, but the per first piece of advice that I wanna give you, and I, I really have to tell you is, um, you know, depend on your conservative sisters. Um, these women that I'm very honored to share this podium with are friends, we work together, we um, sometimes challenge each other when, when we can and when that works. Um, but you know, we are strong, I think we are each stronger because of the relationship and the help and you know, that, that the, literally the sisterhood that, that I share with these women. And again, it's always an honor to be on the podium with them. Um, really, though, I've got three additional pieces of advice for you. Um, love what you do, read and write, and live in reality. So let me tell you what I'm talking about. First of all, love what you do. You know, I've heard so many times when we talk about things, you hear people say, I'm passionate about a particular issue. Um, you know, always do what you love. You can't fake that. And just like they told us during the lunch time, you know, believe in what you do, be who you are, make that part of who you are, but always do something that you love. Um, you know, to choose a career, to work at that, to make that commitment, to make the commitment that it's gonna take away from time that you might be spending with your family, time that you might be doing other things. Make sure, if you're gonna make that sacrifice, that you're doing it for something that you love. A second piece of advice, read and write. Read everything you can get your hands on. Read the best writers that you can find. Um, you know, I'd be happy to give you suggestions of some of, of, of that mine are. <clears throat> but read people that agree with you. More importantly, read about read from people that you don't agree with. But choose the best writers and the best thinkers, no matter what that is, because that will hone your skills so that then you can communicate what your thoughts are. Write as often and as much as you possibly can. Write blog posts, write papers, write op-eds, 
practice that. Send those to people who's writing you admire. Send it to your teachers. Get the criticism. Don't be soft on this. Don't get your feelings hurt about anything. You want every day to get better at that. The reason why I say that is if we are going to be effective in this movement, we have to communicate our ideas. We have to be effective in the message that we put forth. It's not enough to just feel it in your heart. You have to communicate that to other people. So, you know, in this day and age, too, that's tweets, that's blog posts, it's op-eds, in many cases it's books, it's papers that you're writing at school, but you cannot write, you cannot communicate enough. Um, you know, I've been writing for years, I was very, very blessed in college and, and in high school that I had really, really good English teachers and those that challenged me, really tough assignments. But it's a struggle every day to do it and to do it well. Um, so. You know, just write and read as much as you possibly can. Then the third piece of advice that I'll give you is to live in reality. Bay talked about this somewhat in, during the lunch hour. This movement that, that you all are committed on, that we have committed our lives to, it's not easy. It can be ugly. I've been called things on Twitter that I can't even repeat, <laughs> in, in, even you know, just among us girls. Um, you know, you will, be, you will be attacked, you will be accused of things that you didn't do, you didn't say, things that you say will be misconstrued, things that you said will be twisted around. Um, it's not easy, it's hard. Live in reality and understand that this is what it's gonna be, but if you are committed to it, if you're doing what you love, if you're doing what your life mission is, if you've equipped yourself with the ideas and the thoughts and, the, and are able to communicate those ideas, you'll be fine. The other thing about living in reality, and again, Bay, Bay kind of stole some of the things that I was going to talk about, um, but you know, one of the things too is you have to listen to the other people. You have to, I think sometimes in these, and I see this a lot on cable TV, people are involved in an exchange of ideas and they just yell at each other. And you can tell, you know, it, they're, they're, not, they're not listening to each other. It's important to listen. If you're going to communicate and if you're going to make the most effective um, arguments and debates and points that you can. You have to listen to the other person. You have to kind of put yourself in their shoes. Where are they coming from? I thought Bay's comments about listening to women who have had abortions, who are so now in favor of, you know, kind of put yourself where they are. Live in that reality. Don't forget to listen to other people. And then the other thing too, this movement that we're in, and Tammy knows this as well as I do, you know, you're not going to come out of the box and you're not going to succeed on every issue that, that you want to do. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, we may be right, we may have the best ideas, we may communicate them really well, but you walk out of here and you're going to walk into a buzzsaw. And so a lot of these ideas, a lot of these big ideas, a lot of these big movements, it's incremental. It's taken years to move through this. I've been working on an eminent domain, public, <clears throat> private property, constitutional amendment ever since the Kelo decision came down. So for years, we've been working on that. We're still not there. We'll hope, hope next year that we'll get there. Um, so many of these things you have to work on, incremental, compromise, take the, take the, chip away at the problem, chip away at the fight, take what you can get, and then gear up for the next fight, because believe me, it'll be there tomorrow. And also in reality, you have to understand um, that this fight for freedom, this fight for liberty, this fight for personal responsibility goes on every single day. 
the left isn't going anywhere. They are well financed. They are out. They outman us in many of these fights. They're going to be there. This is something that we have to get up every single day and commit to and fight. Now, the good news is, is that we're all in this together. The good news is that we have the better ideas. We have, and I think that we have the moral argument in just about every, whether it's financial issues, whether it's family issues, no matter what it is, I think we have the best argument. So we're well equipped for this fight. But this is not for the faint of heart. Um, I thank you all for what you're doing, for your commitment to this. Quite frankly, we need you. We are desperate for you to join us in this conservative fight. And I'm very proud that you all are here with us, very proud of what the work we're doing, that the Claire Booth Luce Institute is doing. And um, thank you for your commitment and what you're doing. And I'm gonna, I've got lots of other advice, but I'm gonna stop there so that we can, you can hear from my friends and then also we can have a good discussion. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. It's great to see all of you here. I love working with women your age. And so I thank you for your commitment to be here today. And I wanna thank the Clara Booth Luce Foundation for inviting me to be here and to speak. It's, a, it's quite a privilege and an honor. I wanted to start like Becky did a little bit by telling you a little bit about the North Carolina Values Coalition. We are a state-based pro-family grassroots organization. And we work in both elections and public policy to advance um, the pro-life cause, religious freedom, and marriage and family issues. We led the Vote for Marriage North Carolina Marriage Amendment campaign four years ago, which was the last marriage amendment to be passed in the country before it was overturned by the Supreme Court. And um, currently, we have been working uh, diligently in the areas of advancing pro-life policies by helping to get leaders elected who share the pro-life vision and also on the um, so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina, which is otherwise known as House Bill 2. Um, so as a pro-family group, on the pro-life cause, we believe that all humans are created in the image of God as either a male or a female. We also believe that all Americans have the right to freely exercise their religious beliefs, both in public and in private, and that the government should not punish people for exercising their religious beliefs. We also believe that human thriving is dependent upon marriage as the union of one man and one woman, and that children do best when they're raised by their married mother and father. And those are the ideals that we work on. Now we also work on some school choice issues because we believe that parents deserve the right to pick the best schools for their children. Um, but I wanted to just give you one of the verses from the Bible that I live by. Um, and um, now I've lost it. Oh, there it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and knowledge. And I don't know about you, but I never want to be counted a fool. And so as Becky was saying, I listen to other people. And that's an important quality. When I was first out of law school in my 20s, I didn't listen very much. In fact, I told a lot. And um, what I learned from those experiences and the rest of the experiences in my life are that listening to people is a key to making them feel involved to make them feel heard, and to actually enlightening yourself about other people's views. So I would encourage that. Um, 
But I, I did want to take just a moment to talk about the North Carolina bathroom bill because we have become the ground zero on this issue. And it happened quite innocently, I want you to know. <laughs> this happened because the city of Charlotte, through their elected representatives, the mayor and the city council, decided to impose on the people who live in Charlotte, the largest city in North Carolina, a local ordinance that would have allowed men into women's bathrooms and locker rooms and women into men's bathrooms and locker rooms. But it went further than that. It demanded that all businesses and churches and schools in the city would have to violate their deeply held beliefs just to do business in the city of Charlotte. And so when that ordinance was passed, and it started last year in 2015, the city council failed by one vote. And I, I was at both meetings, the one where it failed and the one where it passed. Um, and the, the ordinance was a gross intervention in private affairs. It was government overreach at its finest because it was demanding that businesses, private businesses, comply by this standard that people in Charlotte didn't want to comply with. So the legislature in North Carolina went to work to try and fix the bill. And many people have criticized our legislature for passing a bill in a special session. But let me tell you why it was passed in a special session. Because Charlotte gave an effective date for their ordinance of April 1st. And um, the legislature was not set to go back into session until April 25th. So the ordinance would have gone into effect before the legislature could fix it in a regular session. And many businesses in Charlotte were calling us and saying, what should we do? Do we have to rebuild our bathrooms? What, what are we going to do to prepare for this? In fact, we had one business owner who called us who had just bought the franchise for five gymnasiums that he was going to build in Charlotte. And this guy is an evangelical Christian. He said, if I, if I abide by the ordinance, I'm going to violate my beliefs. If I abide by the ordinance, I'm going to have women come to my gym who don't want to be exposed to men in the locker room, and I'll lose business. But if I don't abide by the ordinance, I subject myself to fines each day, up to $5,000. So this was a problem for business owners. What the, what the legislature here passed is a two-part bill. The first part of it says that it places a duty on um, public school organizations like local school boards and on private, I mean, I'm sorry, on public agencies to designate bathrooms for people according to their biological sex, which is determined by their birth certificate. And also to ensure that bathrooms and locker rooms are used according to biological sex. And so that's the first part of the bill. The second part preempts the right of local governments to pass public accommodations laws and employment laws. This is not a new concept. This has been embodied in our Constitution since North Carolina was founded. We are a state where the power emanates from the state government down to the local governments. And so the local governments have no authority except what is delegated specifically to them. And this power was not delegated to Charlotte. This has arisen in other arenas like um, sanctuary cities, for instance, where local governments want to become a sanctuary city and the, the state government hasn't authorized local governments to pass laws like that. 
like minimum wage, where local government shouldn't be allowed to pass minimum wage laws because all of that power resides in the state. And so that's why House Bill 2 was passed. Now, you guys live in tumultuous times. And I'm sure you're going to colleges and universities across this country now where you already have transgender bathrooms. Check your head if you do. Or raise your hand if you already do. I'd like to know. That's interesting. So you may not be encountering any problems. I don't know. The, the opposition criticized this law because they said there aren't any cases that you can show where transgendered males have actually sexually assaulted a woman in a bathroom. That's not the point. The point is not whether they're transgender or not. The point is there are hundreds of cases across this country where men have dressed as women to gain access to a woman's bathroom or locker room so they could commit sexual assault. And why do we want to open the door to them and make it easier by passing these types of laws and these types of policies? Now, North Carolina finds itself in, in a, an awkward position because the Obama administration has passed some rules that they are trying to enforce on the states in the, in the education arena. And they're doing this without the authority of Congress. You may have read about the rules that they've issued through the Department of Education. The state has sued the federal government over those rules, and the federal government has sued the state. We now have, we had five lawsuits here. Two of them have been dismissed, but we had five federal cases over just this issue, over whether the federal government or a local government can force private entities, businesses, and even public entities, like schools, to open the bathrooms to transgender people or people who even aren't transgendered and just claim to be. And this will be settled in the courts. The, the state of North Carolina has been the subject of extreme bullying, both from uh, businesses, from the human rights campaign, and from sports organizations like the NCAA and the ACC. And the American people are, are in a position where they need to ask themselves, do we want to allow this kind of bullying that would force a state into changing its laws or doing something just because a private corporation or a sports organization doesn't like it? Um, but I, I just want to close. I don't want to spend too long on House Bill 2. I want to close by encouraging you to be a woman of courage. Now, how do you get courage? The way you get courage is that you have the conviction in your heart that what you are working for is right. And the only way I know that happens is to have a relationship with the Lord. And that I have that relationship, and that's where my courage comes from. If I didn't know what I was doing was right, I would be questioning myself all the time. But um, when you have that conviction that what you're doing is right, and that it's the right thing to do what's right, the courage just comes. And um, people ask me all the time, well, how do you survive all these death threats and people threatening to do bad things to your grandchildren? And I just don't let that bother me because when you know what you're doing is right and being a woman who has conservative values is right, then you will have the courage to do it. I also would uh, advise you, if you want to go into public policy, I have found that having a law degree is very helpful. It's not necessary, but it's very, very helpful. 
And um, it, it does create some problems, though, because you start thinking like a lawyer, and too often you're thinking things that, that will inhibit your progress. But I want to encourage you guys in your walk as you are in your journey, as you're going forward as young leaders in America, that we do need you. Uh, we need the, your generation to grasp hold of the conservative values that our country was founded on because they're at risk right now. So thank you very much. Tammy and Becky are pretty hard to follow, but I'm going to give it a shot, so bear with me. Um, I'm going to start off by thanking you for having me here. I work for the John William Pope Foundation. Um, I'm vice president there, and I work primarily on our arts and humanitarian grants um, and also on our operations. Um, as, as it was said, my grandfather and my father started the foundation about 30 years ago. Um, and so when I was growing up, I grew up with two parents who were attorneys, and then also my grandparents who had started the foundation. and. Uh, really used it to sort of advocate for the beliefs that they believed in and the principles that they believed in. Um, and my father was also involved in politics and ran for office. So I was sort of um, aware of that there was something that I wanted to emulate as I became a professional and as I went through school. But it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do and really articulate what it was that was drawing me to these um, positions. So. When I first got out of school, I, was a, um, I had been a journalism and a political science major, and I went to work for a communications firm. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but there was something that was still missing. So I went to work at the John Locke Foundation as a development associate, and I worked with Becky. Um, and I knew that I was getting closer to something, but it wasn't quite there. And so that was about the time I went to law school. And it was really in law school that I think I realized that advocacy was really something that was drawing me in. Um, it was something that was important to me, and I think it's something that's involved in everybody's life, um, whether it's professionally or whether it's personally. And I realized that that was something that my grandparents had done, my parents had done, um, and it was just, it was really sort of at the core at, as to what I was looking to do. So um, when I got out of law school, I, uh, there was a position open at the foundation, and so I went to work um, with my dad, with my family, and with some really great staff members. Um, and it's there that I've really been able to develop that position as advocate for what we believe in, the groups that we give to, the principles that we believe in, um, and through my positions on some different boards, I've been able to advocate for some different groups. I think it's also really important to um, develop advocacy skills for you as a person and for you as a woman. Um, so personally, you know, it's important to be able to say, to be able to stand up for yourself, whether or not it's in, you know, a professional environment, you're in a job interview, um, whether it's personally where you say, you know, I don't think that I want to do that, I don't want to be involved with that, um, I need a break, I'm not going out, something like that. <laughs> um, and I think one of the really important things about being an effective advocate, and something that Pammy and Becky have both talked about, is that combination of humility and confidence. Um, and it's really listening to the other side. It's listening to what's going on around you. And I think it's being aware of what you know and also being aware that there's more that you can learn. Um, so as I said, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, I was in your position about 10-ish a little more years ago. Um, so I'm so excited to be here and thank you for having me. Any questions? 
I got one back here. My question is for Tammy. Um, I actually spent the last week in my law and public policy class talking about HB2. And um, I was wondering your perspective, being from North Carolina and being actively involved in this issue, why the other side is focusing so much on this tiny issue where it could have been, you know, it could have been fixed by encouraging people to use family restrooms or the single, you know, the single stall bathrooms that already exist in most businesses and why you think they have specifically harped on this issue? Well, it doesn't surprise me that you spent the last two weeks of your public policy class talking about this because I know that college professors always want to uh, force you into the right set of beliefs and views on issues like this. Um, this is a, this is, and that's a great question, by the way. I just want to say it's a great question. Um, I believe that the LGBT movement is using the transgender crowd uh, for their purposes to advance what they call civil rights in employment, in housing, and in public accommodations. And so that's what was included in the Charlotte ordinance. They had um, a provision in the ordinance that would have protected people on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. Now, what that means is that they have elevated those characteristics determined by who people believe they are sexually to a civil rights issue. And um, they now will have, you know, if, the, if laws like that are passed in a city or a state, then that gives the people who belong to those groups the right to file suit against any kind of business owner, employer, um, um, vehicles for hire, that was one category covered in the Charlotte Ordinance. And so it creates all kinds of possibilities for frivolous lawsuits against business owners and against the cities. Um, and, and this is what was happening in Charlotte and the state of North Carolina has chosen to not elevate the rights of LGBT individuals, but to just keep them equal with everyone else. And so when they say they want equality, that's not really accurate. What they want is they want elevated rights. They want a cause of action so that they can sue an employer that lets them go for uh, any number of reasons and say they were let go because they were gay or they were transgender. And that is the bigger underlying issue here. Um, it's not really over transgender people going into bathrooms. And if you've read anything in conservative blogs, you can see a lot of transgender people writing about the fact that they've gone to the bathroom for years without any problem, and they didn't need the help of a city ordinance like Charlotte's or Houston's or any other of these state ordinances. So what has happened is they're using these transgender people as a front for a, a bigger movement that's going on. Thank you. Thank you, ladies, for being here. I have um, two questions. The first one's for you, Tammy, because um, I, I used to work at the GA. I know you were there the whole day. HB2 was passed. I remember seeing you. Um, and you and I know what happened that day, and that's not what the media says. And I've recently moved up to the DC area and meet people, and they're like, oh, you're from North Carolina. So any advice to try to lay the land, uh, true facts out and preach that it was, Charlotte started this whole 
circus of events and and for all of you ladies it, um any advice you have uh, for us as conservative women in any of those similar sort of circumstances where we're attacked on certain things we believe thank you well the advice i would give you about how to set the record straight is to talk about the privacy issue that is the issue that resonates with almost everyone um, this is about protecting your privacy in the bathroom do you want a man to come in behind you um, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a grandmother. I don't want men in the bathroom with my little granddaughter. I don't want men in the shower with my daughter. And um, that's one way to set it straight. Another one is to talk about the, um, the power of the state. It's a little bit more convoluted argument and it's hard to say it in a two, two word soundbite. But um, the city of Charlotte overstepped its legal authority. And that's, that's short enough that you can say that to anyone. Um, but that would be my advice, and I'm going to let I'm going to let um, Joyce and Becky answer the other question you asked. <clears throat> this actually goes to the other question and to yours as well. And I think the key words that you used in your question, as far as I'm concerned, is true facts. Mm -hmm. What are the true facts? Now, here's one of the things, and we've seen this in North Carolina with the HB2, and then also a lot of other issues that have passed here in North Carolina over the last four or five years and what a, what a conservative legislature and a conservative governor have done here in North Carolina getting to the true facts. Um, you know, as conservatives, we want, again, to deal in that reality. And, and Tammy has laid out, I think Tammy has given you a really good example of when we're dealing with a question like HB2, the facts that Tammy has laid out are exactly what the case is. What happens in a lot of times with these is, you know, people that are on the other side of it don't always play fair. They're not really interested in the true facts. They are interested in a political advantage no matter what it takes. Now, I would argue that not any, everything that Tammy has said about HB2 is absolutely 100% true. But I, would, I would interject here that there's also something else going on. North Carolina is a battleground state in this election. It may very well be that whoever is the next president of the United States will be decided by North Carolina voters. In addition to that, we are one of 12 states in the country that have a gubernatorial election. Um, th this is a, a prime state to, to do business with. There's a lot at stake here. In addition to that, we have a U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina. It is no coincidence and again, true facts, it is no coincidence that this whole HB2 thing came down in April when it did, the timing is there, this is a political move. It is a political move by operatives in Washington, D.C. and beyond who want to impact what has happened in North Carolina. Um, and so, I mean, I just would add that to it. And I think in answer to your question, this happens with a lot of issues. And that's one of the most frustrating things for me in public policy and at the Lott Foundation, we work primarily on fiscal and economic issues. But you know, another example here in North Carolina, over the last five years, North Carolina teachers have gotten the largest pay increase in the history of this state. An average of 15% pay increase over the last five years. Um, no, 
average teacher pay in North Carolina is now at $50,000. You can turn on the TV while you're here in North Carolina and you will hear ads from the Democrat candidate for governor who will tell you that teachers are moving out of North Carolina, that Republicans have slashed education spending, that teachers are disrespected by the leadership here in North Carolina. That is so frustrating for those of us who deal in reality, we deal with the real facts. So, you know, I mean, I don't know anything else to do because I have to stay true to my principles and the way that I want to argue these situations and these issues is that you just keep talking about the facts and they're indisputable, they're unquestionable, and you just have to keep coming back with that. So that's, that's my answer to what do you do about it. I'd love to just add a little bit more to that because I agree with Becky. It's a political issue. HB2 has become the issue in the General Assembly and gubernatorial races here in spite of the great things our governor has done economically. Um, he just can't, he can't seem to talk about it. So um, it's no, it's no uh, mistake that HB2 has been made such a big deal here in this state because it's about winning the election. But I will say this, if our governor and our General Assembly and our U.S. Senator don't get reelected in this election, there will never be another state in this country that will take up a religious freedom bill because they have been bullied by the human rights campaign and they will be too afraid to go near it from now on. So we have got to win this election. I also wanted to add that I was on a panel for the American Press Institute back in the spring in Charlotte, and um, they, had, they were talking about how to report better on social issues in the 2016 election. And so I was one social issue group, and the other one was the Black Lives Matter group. And they asked how we felt about having PolitiFact come to North Carolina because they would be checking truth and checking uh, the truth of facts that people put out there. And, this girl actually had the gall to say, truth is not something that I really even think about or care about much. She said, what I care about is my paradigm and my reality and my issues. And um, in other words, I was sitting there thinking, the truth has nothing to do with what she's doing. It's all about her messaging point and how they get, how they win. So that is a means justifies the end type philosophy of living your life and there there is no relevancy for truth in that kind of philosophy so that's what you're up against as your generation and I think it's no mistake that we had this riot in Charlotte uh, two weeks ago from the Black Lives Matters group because they're making that into a political issue as well Sorry, just to add on to that, and I don't know that there's that much I can add, but I think just continue to be unapologetic in your beliefs. Be confident. Um, you know, listen to the other side. Resist the urge to be dismissive. I think that is sort of sometimes people can fall back onto that, and it really doesn't do anyone any favors. Um, and I think absolutely have a sense of humor about it and continue to engage in the conversation. Um, I've seen my dad, you know, be attacked and have some terrible and ridiculous things said about him. Um, and one of the things that I really admire is that he is always willing to talk to people, even if he knows that they don't believe with him, even if they've said something terrible. He's always willing to sit down and talk about the facts with them, and I think that's really one huge strength, and, and it's really helpful. Ladies, first of all, I would like to thank you all for being here, and also to thank you for fighting this intense battle here in North Carolina. I know you guys have taken some slashes in my home state of Utah, 
Um, and I know there's some other girls here who, have, who are familiar with this battle. We've been trying to push through very similar religious liberty laws over the last few years unsuccessfully, unfortunately. Um, so just that's my first point is just to thank you because you are paving the way for our other states where we're battling. My question for you today is, I battled with a lot of people on this issue over social media. Everyone feels safe behind their screens, but I was recently talking about this issue with a lady in person, and her strongest argument, most vehement argument for transgender bathrooms was, she told me, well, what about that nine-year-old transgender boy? You would force him to go into a bathroom where, you know, he says that he's a girl and you would force him to go into the boy's bathroom where he would you know, be traumatized by seeing all these men when he believes he's a girl and you want to tell that boy that he has to go into the boy's bathroom or that girl into the boy's bathroom. It's confusing, sorry. Um, that's what happens with delusion. But <laughs> I'm just wondering, it's like when they use that emotional argument of like, oh, this poor, you know, I would say poor confused boy. Um, you know, is being forced. What do you say to that? How do you respond to the emotional argument of transgender non-logic? That's a great question. And um, I get hit with that question a lot. Do you want a man who looks like a woman to be in the man's bathroom, you know? And I got hit with that by a reporter. I, had, I was surrounded three people deep by reporters not too long ago, and uh, there was a plant that asked me that question. But, um, what the answer to this is there are 0.03% of the population that is actually transgender. And so the question, the better question is, do you want the privacy of the other 99.7% of the population to be violated by a policy that would, that would allow this to happen? Um, the North Carolina law allows for the building of separate restrooms by cities and by um, state agencies. And so, you know, it really is a, it's a non-question in my mind because there are other alternatives. But the whole, the whole issue is here, the LGBT activists are not interested in a reasonable accommodation, which would be a third bathroom, a private bathroom. They want full access to the multi-stall bathroom or the multi-stall shower, and that's what the case in Virginia is about, the GG versus Gloucester County case, which is um, now they're filing, they've just filed a petition for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court on this case, and in that case in Virginia, the uh, federal judge told a school system they had to allow a girl who thinks she's a boy into the boy's bathroom. And the school system resisted, and they fought this, and the U.S. Supreme Court has stayed the ruling of the lower court judge. But um, it's not about accommodation, because the school there had made accommodations. But the, the girl and the ACLU, who represent the girl, are pursuing this legally because they want full access to the boys' bathroom. One more question. So. Hi ladies, once again, thanks for stopping by and talking with us today. Um, outside of the bathroom bill, how would you recommend us as conservative women um, fighting battles on our campuses where people automatically revert to the emotional side of the debate um, and bring personal stories into the argument and fail to listen to facts? 
<clears throat> that's a great question and thank you for bringing that up that's one of the things that that we really do find and we've talked a lot about i know at the john Locke foundation and some of the other state-based think tanks that i mentioned earlier um the left has done a really good job of having stories of bringing some you know a disabled person or a single mom or you know you name it so that you really put a face with it i think we forget sometimes because we're so fact oriented you know get the real facts you know as you mentioned earlier that you know we want to put the data out there we want to put the statistics you know there was a study that was done that proves our point um we need to do a better job of looking for those stories and if you think in those terms you can think of a friend a mother i have a series of stories that i tell about fam women female family members of mine who have been impacted by healthcare decisions, occupational licensing, regulations, tax policy, those kind of things. So I would just challenge all of us to, you know, as, as we're working through these issues, to think of those stories. We have them too. You know, what about people that were able to realize their dreams? What about kids that have taken advantage of school vouchers to go to private schools of their choices that would never have those opportunities again? You know, what about healthcare decisions where people take control of their healthcare? The stories are there. I think, you know, just over the years, we've become so fact-oriented. We've kind of missed that, and the left has clearly um, advanced ahead of us on that. But we have the stories. It's just our challenge now to really think of them and bring those forward. Just echo what Becky said, and I don't know, Becky, who you would recommend. I think Arthur Brooks has done a really good job talking about the emotional aspect of conservative values and conservatism. And um, yeah, he he has a book I would recommend. It's called The Conservative Heart, and yeah, exactly. And it kind of goes to the point too of, you know, this whole idea of the left of that, you know, our policies. Um, keep people in poverty when in fact what keep people keeps people in poverty is the welfare system and the dependent system what gets people out of poverty is opportunity and education and, and advancement and entrepreneurship and getting government out of the way so that people really can realize their dreams those are the stories we need to tell and Joyce you're, yeah the, there's an Arthur Brooks um, he is the chairman of the competitive enterprise Institute another great national think tank if you're not familiar with them look them up but he has a new book and it's called the conservative heart and it speaks to that okay well, thank you so much ladies this was really really great thank you for your courage and your service we appreciate it very much this is very enlightening